Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three martinis coming up. Three good martinis coming up, actually. They've kind of been hard to find in the last couple of weeks here, so we're glad we can stockpile them for you here on this Wednesday. Grab a stool and and uh, enjoy them with us. Uh, Jim, there are crazy and bad things we certainly could talk about today. We kicked a few of them around, including AOC's pretend handcuffs. But you know what? Let's, let's focus on some good martinis today uh, and start uh, with a bipartisan, to some extent, uh, Senate smackdown to the Pentagon going extraordinarily woke here. And in particular, the Pentagon's seemingly quixotic witch hunt for domestic extremists, which it uh, went on in the wake of uh, January 6th. And the Senate Armed Services Committee, I'm guessing, Jim, is also doing this in the wake of reports that recruiting is way down for all branches of the service. And I'm guessing lawmakers don't want that to continue. So anyway, the Hill reports the Senate Armed Services Committee signaled opposition to the Department of Defense's efforts to counter extremism in the military in a report on its version of the Fiscal 2023 National Defense Authorization Act. The committee released the text of the bill this week after voting 23-3 to to advance the measure last month. In the accompanying report, the committee says, quote, the vast majority of service members serve with honor and distinction and that the narrative surrounding systemic extremism in the military besmirches the men and women in uniform. The committee believes that spending additional time and resources to combat exceptionally rare instances of extremism in the military is an inappropriate use of taxpayer funds and should be discontinued by the Department of Defense immediately. The vote on that was 14 to 12, with uh, Senator Angus King, technically an independent, but he's almost always with the Democrats, um, voting with the Republicans in favor of what I would say is pretty strong language there, Jim. The downside, though, is the language is non-binding, but it's pretty hard to mistake what the committee is saying to Lloyd Austin and Mark Milley. Focus on the job you're supposed to be doing. Greg, you may recall that back in late 2018, kind of getting into 2019, there were a couple of reports about uh, them finding domestic extremists who were either in the military or had just uh, come out of the military. And they'd be like, you know, two or three here. There was that guy in the, it was a Coast Guard who was involved in plotting terror attacks. Um, there were, you know, after Charlottesville, there were polls of active duty troops and some of them said they had experienced, you know, some cases of white nationalism. Uh, but in terms of arrests, in terms of people who are actually, you know, indisputably members of these groups, you were finding one here, two or three there, stuff like that. And I wrote about this and I said, look, you have nearly 1.3 million men and women in uniform on active duty and about another 800,000 in the reserves. You add that up, that's more than 2 million people. If you take 2 million people, Sad to say, you're going to find at least a handful of really terrible in that group. Uh, you take two million people, there's probably going to be, uh, if not an axe murderer, you know, somebody who is drunk and violent. You're probably going to find somebody who uh, does something inappropriate sexually. You're probably going to find people in all that stuff. So that's why the military investigates these sorts of things. Um, it is worth noting that everybody in the military takes an oath of office uh, to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And you can't be a white nationalist and also believe in that stuff. That is a violation of your oath. Those views are not compatible. And so I, I kind of wrote this. I was like, well, okay, well, let's investigate this. But 
I don't really think there's anything indicating that there's this, you know, surge of this or this wave or that this is a deep rooted and much more common problem than everybody think. And here we are several years later, and there's no evidence to indicate this. And it's good to see Angus King joining the Republicans on this. I'd like to think the Democrats would, would join in on this, too. And no one's saying don't ever look for it again. No one's saying ignore it if you see it. Nobody's saying that these this is tolerable or acceptable or something the Pentagon should say is, you know, we'll give it a wink and a nod and it's OK to have in the ranks. Everyone's just saying, like, look, this appears to have been a moral panic. This appears to have been one or two cases that came out at the same time and freaked people out and made them believe that this was a widespread problem. Here we are years later. This always was overhyped. Good for Senate Republicans and Angus King for observing it. And hopefully the Pentagon will heed their advice. But kind of the dark lining to our silver cloud uh, uh, assessments, you know, I wouldn't really hold my breath on this. No, since it's non-binding, uh, and uh, I mean, Lloyd Austin and, and um, Mark Milley could not be more uh, in favor of uh, pursuing the, the woke agenda in the last place it should be pursued. And, and like you said, Jim, you know, when you're in an institution that involves hundreds of thousands of people, you're going to get a few on the fringe. And so when those cases pop up, you investigate those. But this idea that we have to do this top to bottom search like Tommy Lee Jones looking for the fugitive uh, throughout the military was just a knee-jerk political reaction to uh, January 6th and all it did was distract the military from more important things but they seem to be doing that a lot so we'll see if anything changes but like you said probably not anytime soon uh, man, I hate to end good martinis with, with a dark landing on the cloud. But uh, nonetheless, our country is being rocked by soaring inflation, lackluster leadership at the Pentagon and the White House and on Capitol Hill, and chaos on the world stage. Americans need their legislators to focus on the issues that actually matter and ease the economic pain we're all feeling. Instead, senators like Amy Klobuchar are pushing a big government takeover of America's tech industry through progressive regulations that would worsen inflation and make important digital services like Amazon Prime more expensive and harder to use. Conservatives must block progressive pet projects that will raise prices and undermine our world standing. These lawmakers need to keep American innovation the best in the world. NetChoice wants you to join it in telling Congress to stop those rising prices and reject progressive tech regulations like Senate Resolution 2992. Learn more about the fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Jim. Uh, another thing we've seen the left doing in an unhinged manner is uh, protesting and making threats towards Supreme Court justices due to decisions they don't like. And perhaps the justice who's faced the most venom, um, Clarence Thomas, a close second. But as far as I know, there wasn't an actual assassination plot against Clarence Thomas, would have to be uh, Brett Kavanaugh. But in addition to that particular individual, uh, the justices, and it's not just Kavanaugh, have had people protesting in the neighborhoods around their streets ever since the draft opinion came out back in May. It's been about two months. Kavanaugh lives in Maryland. Maryland is very blue. And even in his very blue neighborhood in the D.C. suburbs in Maryland, they're sick of the protesters. The Washington Post actually uh, reporting on this. Uh, they're talking about one person here. The 46-year-old artist who lives a half block away first marched for abortion rights as a middle schooler with her mom on the National Mall. The court's recent moves to overturn Roe v. Wade prompted her to chalk out a message on her driveway. 
reproduction rights or human rights. And she has had more than 200 yard signs printed and distributed that echo the widely held sentiments of her left-leaning jurisdiction just north of Washington. Chevy chasers for choice. But two months after the demonstrators arrived, often loud and vulgar, she has uh, come to see their methods as so disturbing that come Wednesday evening, she and her family head out to a restaurant for a long dinner. Quote, I understand where their passion comes from, she said, but I've had enough. The mood seems to be shared up and down their narrow street of towering trees, tightly spaced homes, and families with young children. The vast majority of people here are pro-choice, said Lyric Winnick, speaking on her front porch several homes down from the conservative justice. And the very vast majority of people here think these protesters have gotten out of control. So, Jim... Now, none of this would be happening if Merrick Garland would actually do his job, since what they're doing is illegal. Uh, but maybe if the neighbors start getting getting a little more ornery when these folks show up, uh, it'll stop happening. You know, my heart bleeds for those poor pro-choice neighbors of uh, Kavanaugh. You know, <laughs> you know they don't really have. You know, I would say there are certain neighborhoods here in Virginia that don't have it. Obviously, the there are a couple of neighborhoods in Virginia where justices live that have seen similar problems, but. Uh, you know, I, I, we can tie this a little bit to the AOC arrest and listeners, you can't see me making air quotes as I say that uh, <laughs> yesterday, because if you think about it, if the world is full of issues. The world is full of people who care about things like you want. You want to change public opinion. You want to rally public opinion to your side. You want to make people care. Well, how do you do that? Well, ideally, you don't annoy them. If you annoy them, if you frustrate them, if you make your life more, their life more difficult, you're not going to succeed. AOC and the rest of the squad, they, they tweeted out that the, the Supreme Court can't stop us. They arrested us, but we won't stop. Well, first of all, the Supreme Court didn't arrest the, the squad or anybody else. You know, the, the police arrested them. And the reason the police arrested them is because they were doing it in the middle of the street. You have a right to protest. You do not have a right to block traffic. And that's what they were cited for. Of course, she was not handcuffed. They walked around like their hands were handcuffed and they were out within a couple of minutes. And they're going to get you know citation. Charges are likely to be dismissed. I think it was Emily Zanotti who had the very sharp observation that this is like the definition of privilege. When you can know, when you can get arrested and know that you're not really going to suffer any serious consequences. You're not going to have to miss work for going to court. You're not going to end up with a criminal record. You're not going to have to pay a fine. You're not going to have bail. That's when you know it's not really getting arrested, but that's another conversation. But the just being that somebody needed to drive past the Supreme Court yesterday and they couldn't and because the squad wanted to have a protest that day. Now, did those people who were driving, did they agree with AOC? Probably. Did they Were they persuaded by AOC? Probably not. And maybe for anybody who didn't already agree with AOC, they were probably not so inspired by the sight of her walking with her hands behind her, not handcuffed, but pretending to be handcuffed, to come around to her side. You have this regularly with climate protests where they will decide in order to you know, uh, fight the degradation of the environment, Greg, that they will sit in the middle of the street, refuse to move, and make all of those drivers and their internal combustion engines sit and idle, <laughs> spewing more car exhaust into the atmosphere and not getting to their destination, making their trips longer and actually increasing the sheer amount of pollution. Um, lots of people on the left protest to make themselves feel good. They protest for that sense of satisfaction, for that sense that it makes them feel good. It is not actually designed to persuade anyone. And then they get surprised when it actually doesn't work for them. It actually does not rally them to their cause. I think there was some protest run up to, I want to say, to the Iraq war. I don't know if it was Code Pink. It was one of those organizations where they walk around with placards saying, war makes me sick. They're outside some building. And then they, used, they all deliberately chose to drink sour milk 
unsurprisingly, they started vomiting. And they wanted the image of them vomiting in front of this, you know, public building with passersby going on. And they had in their head that somehow this was going to persuade people. This was going to change people's minds on that. I don't think it did. I think most people are just, oh my God, that's disgusting. Oh, I don't, you know, what are you doing vomiting in public? There's a major public, you know, there's bacteria in that. Why are you doing this? Um, something of an exhibition, I might argue, of mental health. I, I think that if you're doing this, you're, you're doing this because it's, it's fulfilling some sort of need for attention within you. It's not actually about changing people's minds. You're not, as Stephen Covey would tell us, beginning with the end in mind, focusing on that end point, that end goal that all of this is involved in. The purpose of it is the, the process. So that's what's happening here. And unsurprisingly, these pro-choice activists are alienating people who already agree with them but again, it's not about actually persuading people. It's about making them feel good about what they're doing. Yeah. Blocking me in traffic will never get me to switch to your cause. Now, I realize that only leftists do that, so I wasn't going to join their cause anyway. But uh, it's it's not a very smart I mean, tactic. I'd be PO'd if pro-lifers or somebody I agreed with decided, yeah, okay, we should, we should block traffic. Don't block me in traffic. Yeah, exactly. You know, make would... your argument to me. You know, just <laughs> getting in my, I don't like people who get in my way when I'm walking. Right? right. <laughs> I don't see a lot of conservatives using that tactic, though, maybe because they understand that all it's going to do is make yeah, people also, angry. Also, Greg, conservatives are working during those hours. True. Very, very true. They're the, ones, they're the ones in the cars, yeah. <laughs> not the ones in the street. CPAC chairman Matt Schlapp explains why firing Nancy Pelosi and winning the midterms needs to be our white-hot focus, or 2024 might not even matter. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, Matt and I also discuss how a small number of leftists are ruining our corporations and institutions and why conservative ideas are better because they work and they make us happy. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jim, on to our final good martini now. And this one is just kind of delicious because after eight years of thoroughly doing his best to destroy New York City. Bill de Blasio has, I think, finally understood, at least temporarily, uh, what New Yorkers really think of him. He could have just uh, gone off and lived in his mansion, maybe even moved somewhere outside of New York City after uh, he couldn't run for another term. And, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's very, very wealthy. He could have done anything. Instead, he decides he's going to run for this 10th congressional district that encompasses part of Manhattan and part of Brooklyn. Well, uh, if you've looked at the polls in that race, you know he was mired deep in single digits. And he also apparently spent a lot of time going door to door, Jim, which in Brooklyn, when you're not popular, is probably a pretty bruising experience. And now Bill de Blasio is saying he's not going to continue this run for Congress. He's dropping out of the race. And according to uh, the Twitter post that accompanies this, uh, he is also uh, saying that he's done with electoral politics. We'll see if that's the case. But nonetheless, uh, this is this is part of his uh, video announcement uh, explaining that he's not going to be in the race any longer. And I've listened really carefully to people. And it's clear to me that when it comes to this congressional district, people are looking for another option. And I respect that. And I just want to say I love the people of this city. I really want to keep serving, and I'm going to find a different way to serve. Yeah, I believe in New York, The uh, that's political speak of they want a different option for people constantly opening the door saying, get the bleep off my porch and you, you destroyed this city and uh, slamming the door back in his face. Is that about right? 
It, it is, Greg. I'll begin with the joke that I suspect many listeners saw coming at the beginning of the segment. Finally, finally, <laughs> New York's groundhogs can breathe freely and without fear. De Blasio is going away, uh, at least from public office. The, you know, I, 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 this does genuine bring genuine satisfaction to me. And it's not just because, oh, we don't like de Blasio. I think you look at the state of New York when de Blasio took over under Michael Bloomberg. Bloomberg was not our favorite person, but, you know, metaphorically and literally, he did make the trains run on time. He de- did what he could to keep the business community pleased. Crime was in better shape when he uh, was departing office than, a de Blasio, than under de Blasio's watch. Life in New York got worse under Bill de Blasio in a lot of different ways. He couldn't control the pandemic. Uh, I did lay out all the different ways in which Bill de Blasio was insisting throughout January and February 2019. There's nothing to worry about. Everything's fine. Go ahead and do it. Uh, go ahead and go act, act the way you, you know, continue live life the way you normally would when, in fact, we kind of realized that uh, quickly it already was in New York City. And in fact, it was spreading around in places like the subways and things like that. Um, de Blasio actually was fairly, by the standards of Democratic politicians, pretty good on attempting to get the schools open and keep the schools open. Um, but by and large, his time, you know, probably this symbolic moment of his time as mayor came in New Year's Eve at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, when New York Times Square, traditionally full of revelers, was closed off to the public. They still had the concerts and I think it's Ryan Seacrest and all that. But the only people dancing as the ball dropped was Bill de Blasio and his wife, a perfect symbolism of how the ruling class got to enjoy the things that were once accessible to everyone. Uh, de Blasio was terrible. He ran for president, did terrible in that. It was not, you know, I think the other thing that's kind of striking is how unlikable he was. And of course, lots of little anecdotes about how as mayor, he didn't work particularly hard. He was not, there are certain politicians who we may disagree with, but they are tireless. They love what they do. They are uh, full of energy and constantly doing it. And there's kind of this sense that de Blasio was a relatively lazy, um, some would just call him a dope. I'll just leave it at that, Greg. Um, some, you know, he had other ways he preferred to spend his time. Bill de Blasio was a failure as mayor. And one of the things that we were regretful about him choosing to run for Congress again was it continued this pattern of like really, really disgraced New York politicians who were utterly convinced they had a second act coming up. Anthony Weiner comes to mind. Uh, Elliot Spitzer did not return to public office, but some idiot at CNN decided, I want to put Elliot Spitzer as the face of our primetime uh, coverage. We just saw Chris Cuomo, uh, who was dismissed. Andrew Cuomo clearly wants to come back in one form or another. Chris Cuomo uh, apparently wanted to be a firefighter in the Hamptons. Apparently the Hamptons Fire Department said, nah, no thanks. And uh, now he's got some podcast or something like that. So there's a certain shamelessness there that once you go, Bill de Blasio, I think in that video, you could see it's dawning on him just how bad he was at this. He, he flamed, you know, New York City is in much worse shape you know, once he's left office. Uh, the guy who got elected to replace him was running on a tough on crime message and you know the recognition that crime was out of control and de blasio has gone door to door and he probably had a lot of people say no i'm not voting for you you sucked as mayor and also nobody wanted you as president either go away and getting it finally got through his thick skull i think somebody said it the other day this is the first time i can remember any politician ever finally reading the room and taking the hint and so Bill de Blasio, go off and do something else with your life. I hope you're there. I hope you're happy for the rest of your days. But by and large, you failed as you know as uh, as as mayor of New York City. I think I can't summarize it any better than the prominent philanthropist and philosopher uh, Oliver Queen, who said, "You have failed this city." <laughs> 
Jim, uh, three good martinis. Doesn't happen a lot. And uh, hopefully we can at least have one tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Always appreciate those. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch podcast. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday. And join us again on Thursday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. The media has sort of decided that this debate is over, which is fascinating. And I want to ask Katie about some of the things people might not know in the industry, because it is very much presented by uh, the medical establishment, by uh, the media establishment, even by the political establishment, I would say, as a completed argument. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.